The purpose of the kingdom study. We do the kingdom study because we need to understand that the church is a part of the kingdom. The church isn't the entire kingdom. The church is a part of the kingdom. Secondly, we've got to understand what is our role as a disciple in the church because the church is a part of the kingdom. So what is my role? What is my part in the kingdom because the church is a part of the kingdom? So this is going to be a great time. And what I like to do is, is this study is kind of like an Indiana Jones movie. You know how Indiana Jones, they find all these clues and they find more pieces and then all of a sudden at the end it all comes together in one big... Oh, that's what it is. That's what this study is about. So we're going to look at different prophecies first. Old Testament, New Testament. And you got to remember, prophecies is, is something that somebody is talking about. They're foreseeing something that's going to happen in the future. And so when you think about it, again, if somebody told you two years ago, you're going to be sitting in here tonight wearing what you're wearing, listening to somebody talking about the kingdom of God, you would think they're crazy. But then when it actually happens, you're like, oh, this is, this is different. Something's going on here. So our study will help you understand how the Bible all fits together. You know, some people say, is the Bible real? Does it fit together? I don't understand it. This study is going to help you have a lot more faith than you have before. Because you'll see how God pieces things together. So the first scripture we're going to look at, Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. And this scripture was written by Isaiah 750 years before Jesus was even born. Before any of that. So it wasn't like, oh, he saw Jesus and had a revelation. No. This is before Jesus was born. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. It says, this is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore. So as we start this, there's three different clues they give us right away about the kingdom of God. The first one is this. In verse 2, when does it say the kingdom of God is going to start? Now again, when we talk about the kingdom of God, God lives at this point in time on the mountain. You guys remember seeing like Ten Commandments and Moses go up on the mountain of the Lord and all that? So when it talks about the mountain of the Lord, that's where God dwells. That's God's home. So when it talks about the kingdom of God, that's where is God living? Where is God dwelling? So when we look at this, when is the mountain of the Lord, the kingdom of God, God's home, going to be established? When is the second? In the last days. First thing it says, verse 2. So now you know, in the last days, that's when the kingdom is going to come. Now, it says in the last days. When it starts, look at the end of verse 2. Who's going to be there? In other words, who's going to strain to it when it starts? All nations is going to be there. Now, it gives us a third clue as to where it's going to start. Look at the end of verse 3. It says, the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
Now Zion is the mountain that the city of Jerusalem is built on. So Jerusalem is on the, the, the Mount Zion. So when you look at this, you say, okay, there's three clues you got to remember. When's it going to start? Who's going to be there? Where's it going to start? In the city of Jerusalem. Right. Now, when we do this, everybody needs to chime in together because this is a whole class period here. So it's not just a couple people. You're not graded on this. Ooh, I didn't give you out a test either. We'll come back to all that. Okay, one more time. When's it going to start? Who's going to be there? Where's it going to start? Absolutely. Look over in Daniel chapter 2. Just a couple of books after Isaiah. A couple of pages. Daniel chapter 2. Now, in verse 44, there was a dream. They had this dream, and it was about the kingdom being established. And there was one kingdom that was going to be established, and it was going to be overthrown by another kingdom. And then another kingdom was going to come and overthrow that kingdom. These kingdoms were going to be dominating each other. But during that time, God himself, it says, was going to cut out a rock. And he himself was going to smash all these kingdoms and set up his own kingdom. So during this time, back then, this is about 550 B.C., it talks, prophesied about God establishing his own kingdom. And look at verse 44, what it says, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Now here's something else you got to understand about the kingdom. How long is the kingdom going to last? Forever. forever. When it starts, it's going to last forever. Very, very important. So again, when's this kingdom going to start? Who's going to be there? Where's it going to start? Now how long is it going to last when it starts? Exactly. Look in chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 18. He's talking again about the kingdom. Helping us to understand. Verse 18. He says, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Now the word saints is short for sanctified. That's what it means. Sanctified means set apart. If I had 24 apples right here on the table, and I took eight of them and put them over here, they're all still apples, but only those eight are sanctified. So those are set apart. So it says, his saints, those that are sanctified, will be the only ones that can possess the kingdom forever. Yes, forever and ever. So that's another clue that comes to it. Who can possess the kingdom? The saints of the Most High. Exactly. Now, again, these are just some, a few prophecies in the Old Testament. There are hundreds and hundreds. We don't have time to go through all of them. But I do want to go through some of the New Testament prophecies as well about the kingdom. So, before we go there, quick review. When's it going to start? Who's going to be there? <laughs> Where's it going to start? Who's going to possess it? possess the kingdom. How long will the kingdom last? Forever. Exactly. Now, look over in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. This is a smart group. <laughs> Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. 
Okay, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt wrapped around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan. So John the Baptist came on the scene, and his whole purpose was to set up and make a path for Jesus to come. So as he's out there preaching, he also says something about the kingdom of God. But he tells us we need to do something before we can get into the kingdom of God. What does it say we need to do? Repent. Now he said we need to repent. Did he say because the kingdom of God is here? No. He said it's near. It's not here yet. But it's near. This is what we got to understand. First of all, in order to get into the kingdom, we have to repent. And the word repent is a military term. Like when you're marching out and they call for us to repent, that means you turn around and do the exact opposite direction and retreat, basically. So, in other words, if I'm living a certain way and I realize this is not the way I need to live, if I'm going to repent, that means I'm going to turn around and do the total opposite. If you're rollerblading down the hill, and you look, and you're almost at the bottom, and there's four Rottweilers waiting down there, foaming at the mouth for you. What are you gonna do? You gonna, <laughs> yeah. you gonna stop first of all, because you you know that is not where I want to go. So you you put on the brakes, but you don't just sit there and look at them. You turn around and boogie boogie. You go back the opposite way as fast as you can. That's repentance. You can see repentance is not prayer about it. You don't sit there, oh, oh, Lord, please don't let these dogs come out and get me. And you sit there for three weeks praying about it. That's not going to happen. You're not going to sit there and fast about it. Oh, I'm just going to sit here and and not breathe until these dogs go away. You're not going to fast about it. You make a decision to do something, and then your life shows action towards that decision. So repentance is more than just praying about it. It's more than just a confession. It's you making a decision to change, and then you do it. And he says, listen, the kingdom is near, but you've got to repent first. And this is what John the Baptist said. Now, look in chapter 4, verse 17. Matthew 4, 17. First John the Baptist said that, and then Jesus came on the scene, and he says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now here's the thing. Many people thought when the Messiah comes, the kingdom's going to come. But Jesus didn't say the kingdom is here. Just because I'm here doesn't mean the kingdom's here. Actually, it's near. But you still got to repent first before you get into the kingdom. So, let's review once again. When's the kingdom going to come? Who's going to be there? Where's it going to start? How long will it last? Who gets to possess it? What's something you have to do before you can enter the kingdom? Okay. Now look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 1. Here's Nicodemus. He's one of the religious teachers, but he comes to Jesus at night because he didn't want people to see him talking to Jesus because he's just so prideful in that way. But in John 3, verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are teachers come from God, but no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with them. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell the truth, no one 
can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying. You must be born again. So here's Nicodemus, a religious teacher. He knows a lot of the traditions and the scriptures, but he didn't understand about rebirth. So when Jesus says you must be born again, he's thinking, how are you going to go back up in your mama and come back out? And he's just like, that just can't happen. Jesus said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. It's a spiritual birth, born of water and spirit. But then Jesus said, you must be born again. He doesn't say, here's a suggestion or here's a thought. He said, you must be born again. Now, what does that, what does that entail? Well, think about it. There is an obvious difference in a woman who's nine months pregnant and not pregnant at all. It's a huge difference in all kind of ways. But when she has that baby, it doesn't just, whoop, there it is. It's a lot of turmoil. It's a lot of screaming. It's a lot of crying. A few cuss words shooting out. All kind of stuff's happening when that baby starts coming out. We have to have a personal conversion. And that conversion isn't going to just be, look, everything's easy. You will go through challenges, you'll go through trials, because that's what it takes to be born. Birth is a tremendous process. So in order for us, we've got to understand, there's a difference, a woman who's pregnant, a woman who's not. The way you are now, it needs to be so different, people look at you and say, you're not the same person anymore. People that knew you a while ago can say, wait, you, oh, you don't do that anymore? You're too good for us? What's wrong with you? You start to get criticized because you're different than what you were. Mm-hmm. If people don't have something to criticize you about because you're different or encourage you about because you're different, then you're no different. You must be born again. This is not optional. He didn't say you got to be a, a better moral person or... Just improve your life a little bit. We don't follow Jesus to improve our lives. We follow Jesus to be a different person. So in order to come into the kingdom, you got to repent. But you also must be born again. Now he talks about a water and spirit. And we'll get into that in a minute. But it kind of already gives you an idea of what he's talking about. When he refers to that. And look over in uh, Mark chapter 9. Verse 1. This is Jesus speaking, and it says, He said to them all, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. So Jesus is talking to his 12 disciples, and he says, Some of you will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God come with power. In other words, if I were to say that, some of y'all here will not taste death before our church gets to a thousand members. That means some of you will be alive when we get to a thousand. Mm-hmm. Some of you won't. So he told his 12 disciples that some of you will not taste death before the kingdom of God comes. So that means in the lifetime of his 12 disciples, the kingdom was going to start. At least one of them will be alive. He said some. What he said here in the lifetime of the disciples. Now, all of them were dead. They're not walking around. Peter's not walking around now. I mean, they're all dead. 
So that means it started way back then. Now, how long does the kingdom last? Forever. Forever. It started way back there. That means it's somewhere here today, the kingdom of God. So, let's just review once again. When does the kingdom of God start? Who's going to be there? Where is it going to start? Who's going to possess it? What must you do in order to enter the kingdom? Repent, and you also must pour the water of the Spirit. Exactly. And what? <laughs> Whatever, there's always one. Now, look over in uh, Matthew 16. See all these clues we're talking about here? This all shows how the Bible's going to fit together. Because every clue we talked about is all going to be answered in one day at one time. It'll all fit together. Now, Matthew 16, verse 13. Since when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So they get to this region of Caesarea Philippi. And, there, and it's a town and there's just all kinds of temples and idols set up. So people are worshiping all different kind of things. So he walked in with his disciples and said, well, who are these people say that I am? You know, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. I mean, they're all saying the Messiah is somebody. He says, well, what about you, 12? Who do you say I am? It gets real quiet. And then Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, yes, you are right. That's just not your wisdom, but that was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And you know what, Peter? You're going to have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, what are keys used for? Unlocking things, open doors. And so he says, Peter, you're going to be the one that's going to open the door. You're going to unlock it for people to be able to get into the kingdom of heaven. And that's important to remember. It's not James. It's not John. It's not, you know, Luke. It's not all these other people. It's Peter that's going to have the keys to unlock the doors to the kingdom. And look in Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, verse 50. Now, this is after Jesus had been crucified on the cross, and he was dead. And in verse 53, it says, I'm sorry, Luke 23, verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. So here's this guy. He was a good guy, but Jesus had already died. And it says he was still waiting for the kingdom of God. So even though Jesus was born, he had his ministry, he was crucified on the cross, the kingdom still did not start at that time. So at this point, everybody's freaking out. They don't even believe in the kingdom anymore. They don't know what's going on. Maybe he really wasn't the Messiah. Because they, they can't understand what the kingdom is all about. 
But it tells us here that even after Jesus died, the kingdom still did not come. So, let's review one more time. When is the kingdom going to come? Who's going to be there when it comes? Where is it going to start? How long will it last? Who gets to possess it? What's one of the things you must do? Repent. What's another thing? Be born again. A water and spirit. Exactly. It talks about all these things. Who's the person we're going to need to listen to because he has the keys? Peter. Peter. See, all these different clues it gives us about the kingdom of God. Look in Luke chapter 24. I want to look at one more thing, and then we're going to go into seeing the kingdom revealed. Luke 24, verse 44. After Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he came back and he appeared to his disciples for over a period of 40 days. He talked to them, he ate with them, he hung out with them. That's how they knew he was resurrected. He stayed with them for 40 days. In verse 44, he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Jesus resurrected, and before he ascended to heaven, he says, listen. Repentance and forgiveness will be preached in my name in Jerusalem. Now I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for the kingdom of God. So even after he was resurrected and ascended to heaven, the kingdom still wasn't here yet. So at this point, let's take a look at the kingdom. Turn over to Acts chapter 1. I know you may think it's crazy, but we're going to review this one more time. When's the kingdom going to start? Oh, now y'all saying it dragon. Last day. We know this. Yes. But your friend you're studying with is now juiced up because he knows all kind of Bible stuff now. When's it going to start? Who's going to be there? Where's it going to start at? How long will the kingdom endure? Who gets to possess it? What's something you must do in order to enter the kingdom? Repent. What's something else? And what's going to be preached in Jesus' name? Repentance and forgiveness. Who's going to be the one with the keys preaching them? Okay. Now, at this point, I would read all of Acts chapter 1, but I'm not for this for time's sake. But one of the things I always point out in Acts chapter 1, um, towards the end here, in verse 18, it says, with the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. The Bible gets very graphic. But this could kind of throw people off, because when you read in Matthew, it talks about how Judas went out and hung himself. He said, well, wait a minute, that's not what this says right here. It's a contradiction in the Bible. No, it's not. Let me help you understand. 
the people hang themselves and they're there hanging for a while all the blood rushes to the bottom of their body their hands, their, their feet swell up rope snaps he lands, boom literally your body will explode there's been many people that I've on the fire department had to get off who had hung themselves and you go to lift them up and literally their feet squish out into their shoes I mean, it's, that's what happens to the body it's not a contradiction it's the same thing that happened. It doesn't say how long he was hanging there, but he was hanging there long enough that his blood rushed down. And so when he did come out the tree, literally your body can burst open and your intestines can come out, just as the Bible said. So that's not a contradiction. That is a true medical fact of what can happen. Amen. I just point those things out because sometimes people look for different loops. Wait, the Bible's not true. Oh, it's true. You just don't know your medical history. So... Not a big deal, but I just kind of throw that in there every once in a while. So, we have all these foods that we just went over. And so now, I'm going to start in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, because I already read chapter 1. And as I go through this, we're just going to stop and point out some of these clues as they go. So as I read this, I want you to say, ding, every time one of those clues that we had talked about, you see, actually happening. So in verse 1... So I'm not going to be offended. I want you to say, and interrupt me when you see a clue. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, <laughs> I won't be offended unless you're wrong. <laughs> not yet. Calm down. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, and the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. That is one. Actually, we didn't read all that in Acts, but it did talk about you'll be clothed with power from on high. So if you can imagine in this room, like, it would be a hurricane wind all of a sudden coming. And you're like, where's the wind coming from? And then fire came to rest on all four of us. Not everybody, on just the four of us. And then all of a sudden we started speaking in tongues to everybody. And that's important. Because when that happened, not everybody there was able to speak in tongues. Just those that the fire came to rest upon, those apostles. Not everybody, just those apostles. You say, well, why? But when the apostles started talking, it was the day of Pentecost, they were, it's like a spiritual Mardi Gras. People come from everywhere, hundreds of thousands of people from everywhere. They weren't all English speaking. They spoke in different languages. So, the apostle got up, even though they're from Galilee, he started speaking. So, if you were French, you would hear it in your language. You were Russian, you would hear it in your language. You were German, in your language. It's a clear language that is spoken. That's what a tongue is. So, when people start saying, I just have my special tongue between me and the Lord. No, 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 you don't understand. You, you can't get up there, I'm saying, I'm That's not how it works. You gotta understand, the apostles only were the ones speaking in tongues so that everybody could clearly hear. God wanted his message getting out strongly to the people. Now, let me ask some questions to him. And so this is what he did. So, now verse 5. Now, they were all staying in Jerusalem. Exactly, that's where it's going to start. Y'all a little late on the names on that one, though. Y'all were early before, and now you're late. Now they were staying in Jerusalem. 
God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. <laughs> when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each of them heard them speak in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Nemites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Persia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days. Exactly. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, your old men will drink dreams. Even in my servants, both men and women, I will pour my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming and great glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. So as, as I will continue reading, but let me just point this out. What Peter's talking about here, he says, in the last days, Last days does not mean the end of the earth. See, up until this time, they had lived under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, Moses' law. But all that is done away with now. Now, he's saying, this is the last days of Moses living under that law. Now we're going to live under the covenant of Jesus. So no longer do we need to sacrifice animals so their blood can cure us, cleanse us. Now, the sacrifice that Jesus did, his blood will cleanse us for the rest of our lives. The old covenant is done. This is the last days of that. It's over with. The new covenant is what we will live under and have a relationship with God under. And that's all through the blood of Christ, not the blood of animals. So that's what he's talking about when he talks about the last days. So then he goes on in verse 36. Well, in verse 22 he said, Men of Israel, let me tell you this. Jesus died for your sins. Your sins nailed him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day because not even death could keep his hold on Jesus. All these people came to worship Jesus. To, to worship, I'm sorry, to Pentecost so they can worship. They were religious, but they didn't understand it was their sins that caused Jesus to die on the cross. They didn't understand that they were responsible. And so when Peter says this in verse 22, this is the first time they understood this. He said, listen to this. He did miracles, wonders, and signs. This shows you he was the son of God. But because of your sins, he had to die on the cross. But then God still raised him from the dead. 
And it convicted them so much that it was their responsibility that Jesus died. Look at what happens here in verse 36. Peter goes on and says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Let me ask you, when it says cut to the heart, what do you think that means? That means they were convicted. It wasn't just, I feel guilty, and then they started moping. No, 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 no. They felt convicted enough that they said, what shall we do? See, there's a difference in being guilty and being convicted. When you're convicted, you want to change something. When you feel guilty, you want to run away. You want to shut down. You want to close down. That's guilt. That's not what he wanted us to feel. He wanted us to feel convicted so we would change. They said, what shall we do? If Peter said, cut off your right arm, they'd have sliced that thing off. Because they were willing to do whatever it takes. But Peter told them something else. Now here's the thing. Why is it Peter that's going to tell them? Because he has the keys. Exactly. Look at what he told them to do, though, in verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. First of all, they did exactly what Jesus said. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name. That's exactly what he preached. You need to repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then he says, when you're baptized in water, you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So now you're getting baptized in water and spirit. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said, how you're born again, of water and spirit? So when you come out the waters of baptism, you're a whole new person. You're a different person. You're born again. Now, this can be for you, for your kids, for your grandkids, for your great kids, for all who are far out. So how long can the kingdom endure? Forever. Forever. If we repent and we do what he wants us to do. See, people think, people think baptism is just a symbol, an outward symbol of inward repentance and blah, blah, blah. They go into all these different things. You don't understand. Baptism is a must. Jesus didn't say it's optional if you want to get baptized. He says you must be born again. He says you need to repent first before you get into the kingdom. Little baby, nothing they can repent of. All they do is cry and poop and sleep. They're not going to stop crying, they're going to not stop pooping, and they ain't going to stop sleeping. They have nothing to repent of. That's not a real biblical baptism. He says you need to repent and be baptized every one of them. Then he says here in verse uh, 40, With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now this is important. Tune in here real good. There's a million plus people here the day of Pentecost. They came from all over to worship God. And they had their own ways of worshiping God. But how many, about how many were baptized that day? 3,000. So there's a million people worshiping God. But 3,000 said, I'm going to do it the way you said, Peter, and I'm going to follow you. So out of that million, 3,000 were set apart over here. 
Now, what do you call those that are set apart? Sanctified. Sanctified. Are those people, do they still love God? They still love God. But are they God's people? No. Hmm. Only those that are over here sanctified. That said, I'm going to do it the way Peter told me to do it. See, there's a lot of people in the world that love God. A lot of people that go worship God. But that doesn't make you right with God just because you say, I love God and I worship God. You have to do it the way the Bible says in order to be one of those sanctified people. Amen. That's important to understand. Because you're gonna, everybody you meet is going to think their church is the right church. The way they do it is the right way to do it. You know what? It's not about our church. It's not about what I think. It's about what the Bible says. Amen. And if we're not doing it biblically, you're not a saint and you're not sanctified. You're not in the kingdom of God. Those that do it biblically are now over here. You say, well, what about all those people there? You going to tell me God is going to let them go to hell? I ain't going to tell you nothing. The Bible's going to tell you that they're going to not make it. Because they're choosing not to repent, not to do what God says. God has his boundaries. They choose not to follow his boundaries. That's not for me to judge them. That's for the Bible to judge them. But you know what? I know where I need to be over here. So I'm going to worry about me getting over here and not worry about them and what are they doing. I don't know what the pygmies are doing in Australia. I can't tell you nothing if they're making it to heaven or not. But I can tell you what you're doing right now in New York. And that's all that matters right now. Because people try to make other things an issue. What about so-and-so? What about this? I don't know. I'm not God. What about you? The pygmies ain't got nothing to do with you on the internet right now at 1130 at night. Let's talk about that. Amen. See, there's like, well, you speak it in tongues now. <laughs> Look at verse 42. So now you got these 3,000 over here that are sanctified. They did it the way Peter said. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So let me ask you this. Frank. All y'all Frank. You got these 3,000 over here. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Where are we going to find the apostles' teaching? In the Bible. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to prayer. They broke bread together. I mean, where do you find people breaking bread, having communion, studying the Bible, fellowship, and where do you find that? You go to church. That's where you find it. So, what you're telling me is that the church is the kingdom? No, no, what I'm telling you is all these clues we just talked about led up to God creating the church the way he wanted it to be created. Amen. Right there with his sanctified saints. There's a whole lot of them, but there was only about 3,000 that was a part of his church. See, this is what we got to understand. The church is just a part of the kingdom. Because what if those 3,000 got on a spaceship, a spaceship and went to Mars? Where would the kingdom of God be? It'll be on Mars, wherever those 3,000 saints are. Well, what if those saints met in a high school? Then that's where the kingdom of God is, in a high school. What if they met in the park? That's where the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is within you. It's wherever his saints are. That's where it is. 
You say, so wait a minute. So if I'm a part of this and I decide I don't like this anymore and I want to go over here, you're telling me I'm no longer in the kingdom of God? No, what I'm telling you is this. You can walk away from the group of disciples and go next door and worship with whoever it may be. And you can walk in there as a disciple. And you can walk in there faithful and strong. But as time goes on, if you're not held to the godly standard, the biblical standard, what's going to happen to you and your convictions? They're going to all shrink back. So am I saying you're not in the kingdom? No, you're going to go there and still be in the kingdom, but it's just a matter of time before you yourself step out of the kingdom. So common sense says I need to be where other people are that have the same convictions, going by the Bible, with the same boundaries, the same standards, if I want to make it. I can't worry about everybody else. I can just worry about me. And that's the important thing. We don't walk around judging other churches and other people. You know, the Catholic Church does a, a lot of good things. They got some issues. They do a lot of good things. We ourselves, we do a lot of good things. The key is, am I going to follow the Bible? That's what the key is. So the key isn't, what, okay, I'm in this church, I'm in that church. The key is, am I following the Bible in God's church the way I should be? That's what the kingdom of God is all about. His disciples in his church living by his will. That's why it's important for you to come to our fellowship. It says they were devoted to fellowship. When you're devoted to something, you are committed to it. If you get married, you're devoted to your wife. You don't show up three days a week at home. You try that and see how long you have a home. When you're devoted, you are devoted. You better be there. You better do what it takes. That's devotion. And see, you see people that go to church, you know, Christmas and Easter. That's not devotion. So you tell me they're in the kingdom of God when they just go when they feel like it or they had a sniffle this day and so they didn't go? A sniffle doesn't keep you from the kingdom of God. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Matthew 6, 33. It says something here that's very clear. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Here's the thing. There's no reason why we should not be with the, with the church when it meets together. If we're committed to it and devoted to it, we're going to be there. It says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow, don't worry about itself. You think about it. You have never seen a little bird that just starts flying and just have a heart attack because he's so worried about where his next meal is coming from. They don't just fly and just, and die. God even takes care of the little birds out there on the streets. He takes care of the grass. He takes care of all that. He will take care of you if you seek him first. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. There's a lot of clues about the kingdom. But I want you to understand, when you come and you see us and, and you're a part of what we're doing, it's not just church. You're a part of the kingdom of God. It's not the entire thing. We can't even comprehend the entire kingdom of God. But it's a part of the kingdom of God. And that's what you need to understand. So my question for you, Frank, I'll be Frank. <laughs> Do you want to be a part of the kingdom of God? Yes. 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 Amen. If you do, it's up to you. I'm not going to force you to do it. But you can say no, and you can go be a part of another church. That's totally fine. That's your business. 
But if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, I just showed you biblically. Now I want you to come and see our lives. Because even though we may say it and live and know it, have the right doctrine, it's important that you see our lives to see that we're following that right doctrine. Because you know what? There's probably some people out there that also have the right doctrine. I totally believe there are people out there with the right doctrine. But that doesn't mean they're living the right life. There's some people out there that have a great life, but they may not know the right doctrine at all. I got family members that will not miss church for nothing in the world. They are so devoted. But you know what? After church, go home, they're going to roll up a joint. They're going to light it up. They're going to do all the stuff they do. you got to watch your life and doctrine closely. Remember we talked about this in the very first scripture, this lesson. Watch your life and doctrine closely. And I'm saying this because I, when you come to church, you may see somebody that's like, what's going on there? Maybe they're visiting or maybe they're not visiting, but they may need somebody to correct them. Because even if they start going astray, what we do in our fellowship is correct and pull each other back on the right path. So I want to encourage you to come for the next three weeks. Frank, oh, y'all better be there every day. Frank, come for the next three weeks. See, not just church, but see our lives. And let that be an example for you. Not just the words that we're talking about, but let our lives show that this is the kingdom of God. There is something different here in what we do. I love you, Frank. This is the beginning. Our next study, we're going to talk about sin. Because as you said, you've got to repent before you enter the kingdom. Well, we're going to talk about what it is that you need to repent of. Because you can't repent of something that you don't know. How can you repent of something you don't know? What are you going to say, I'm just going to repent of sleeping? You know, you can't just repent of things like that. So we want to point out what it is you need to repent of so you can make the change and you can enter the kingdom of God. This is for you, Frank. This is what the kingdom is all about. I love you. God bless you.